What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about politics, of course. Then we'll have a new segment of news you can use, what to watch and what to read while we're all abiding by the stay-at-home orders. John Powers has some suggestions. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. But first... We're still thinking about Tara Reid's allegation that in 1993, Joe Biden backed her up against the wall, kissed her neck and hair, put his hand under her clothes, and penetrated her with his fingers. For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. She also writes for The New Yorker and The Atlantic Online. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, Tara Reid's most committed defenders, like Kate Mann at The Nation, say that even if she were proven to be telling the truth, if it comes down to a choice in November between Biden and Trump, she will vote for Biden. But, she and others say, it's not too late to replace Biden as the candidate if an independent investigation supported Tara Reid's charge. Then, Kate Mann writes, Biden might be pressured to step aside to make way for a less compromised and therefore more promising candidate, close quote. So there's really two related questions we have to talk about. First, do you think Tara Reid is telling the truth about Biden? And second, if she is telling the truth, should we vote for Biden anyway? Uh, Let's start with the allegation and the evidence about what happened in that hallway. Tara Reid says that she was asked to bring a gym bag to Biden, who was traveling in the corridors of the Capitol, and that when she found him, he put her up against a wall and penetrated her with his fingers and said, asked her if she wanted to go somewhere, and then when she indicated that she wasn't pleased with his attentions, uh, he said, you're fine, you're fine, you're nothing to me, and walked away. To believe this story 
you have to believe that he did these things in the spur of the moment in a public hallway. She can't quite identify it, but it is a public space. Her lawyer said it was, a quote, a semi-private area like an alcove, but PBS NewsHour sent reporters to go over all the possible places where this could have been and established there is no semi-private area like an alcove there. And interestingly enough, Reid told Megyn Kelly that before she caught up with Biden, he was talking to another person. So it wasn't a private area and it was the middle of a work day. So to believe Reid, you have to believe that Biden would do that. And I just think that that is that's asking a lot. She says she filed a sexual harassment complaint after the incident. There's been a lot of back and forth about that. What do we know about it? Well, yeah. So she said she first she said she filed a sexual harassment complaint at a Senate office. Then she said, well, I didn't use the it doesn't say sexual harassment. It describes what happened, but it doesn't describe this assault. It describes other complaints she had. You know, she didn't like a lot of women. Um, she didn't like his touchy-feeliness. And she she said she had been asked, not by him, but by a staffer, to serve drinks at a fundraiser. And there are problems with that I'll get to in a minute. Um, and that he wanted her to do it because he liked, her, he, quote, liked her legs. And when she refused, that was when... Her job responsibilities were taken away from her. She was put in a windowless room. And eventually she was told she had a month to get another job and she was basically fired. That would be what maybe would be on this complaint she says she filed. But sometimes she says, well, it was just an intake form. So she's very unclear about what this form was or wasn't. Um, And then it became a whole thing like, well, where is that form? And Biden asked the National Archives and the Senate Secretary's Office to release what, it, release what they had. They said um, they, that would violate confidentiality. And then Reid called on Biden to open his more than 1,800 uh, boxes of paper at the University of Delaware. And those are so they could look through it and find it. Somebody could do this. And this is not digitized, by the way. So people who say, oh, it would just take five minutes, you just put in her name. No, it wouldn't be like that. And these papers are closed until two years after he leaves public life. So he declined to do that, saying the document would not be there and a search would set off a fishing, fishing expedition. But the point is, even if the complaint were found, it would tell us nothing about this alleged assault because she said she didn't include it in whatever paperwork she filed or didn't file. So I think that's a wild goose chase. We know a lot of other things about Tara Reid. What, what do you make of the crazy stuff she's written about Putin being, quote, intoxicating to American women, close quote? Yeah, I was always a little skeptical, but I was kind of on the fence um, because most women who claim to have been sexually violated in some way are telling the truth. Um, and so you don't want to quickly dismiss a claim I wouldn't say I wanted to believe her, but I was willing to believe her. But there are one thing that happens a lot in her story is she gives too many reasons for things. I'm getting to Putin in a moment. She gives too many reasons why something happened. You know, you should only give one reason and you should just stick to the reason. 
That's my advice for all you listeners out there. One reason. So she wrote these pieces, uh, which she published uh, about Putin, and she published them on Medium.com, which is this, uh, a website where anyone can post anything. And it was just worshipful. This is my favorite quote. President Putin's obvious reverence for women, children, and animals, and his ability with sports, is intoxicating to American women. Um, so then she deleted these posts. These were in the, uh, toward the end of 2018. Um, she deleted them, and now she says that she lost faith in Putin. She deleted them because she lost faith in Putin when she learned of Russia's decriminalization of domestic violence. But this cannot be true because she had retreat, retweeted and liked the year before a tweet from Chelsea Handler about the new Russian law decriminalizing much domestic violence. And then she said, okay, these pieces were really part of a novel, but there's nothing novelistic about them. They're straightforward opinion pieces. Um, and she told Megyn Kelly that all this quasi-erotic gushing over Putin was supposed to be humorous. Well, okay. So anyway, those pieces are one reason why there was this uh, claim out there in Twitter land that she was a Russian spy. Oh. Um, okay. And, but, you know, she's such a terrible writer, and she published these invisible, self-published these invisible pieces, and it just doesn't seem to me like the Russians would bother with someone like that. Well, there are better reasons to believe Tara Reid. She does have people who corroborate her story, or at least sort of corroborate it. Right, right. And this was why I was willing to believe. But then when you looked into these corroborators... They're, they're questionable, too. If you examine their, the accounts closely, there are only two that claim to know about the assault. Her mother, who is now deceased, you know, there was this whole thing where she said her mother called in anonymous. She says she told her mother right away. And her mother said, you should go to the police. And Tara Reid said her mother called in anonymously to Larry King. And a video of that call came to light. But her mother said uh, only that her daughter had been, had been working for a, quote, prominent senator, unquote, and had problems that she couldn't get help for. So that doesn't count. Then her brother, who she also says she told quickly after this supposed assault, also said nothing about the, the assault when he was interviewed by the Washington Post. And then he's having spoken to the left-wing journalist Nathan Robinson, who is the editor of Current Affairs, the brother texted the Post a few days later and said, oh, now I remember Biden putting, quote, his hands under her clothes. Um, and then there were some other people who she told, who say she told us about sexual harassment, but there was no mention of assault. Um, even from her ex-husband, who filed an affidavit in 1996, in which he, he says, in, as part of their divorce, uh, said Reed told him she had been sexually harassed when she worked in his office, but there was no mention of assault. And the sexual harassment, I might say by way of parenthesis, doesn't necessarily come from Biden, because for the whole first part of this, she was complaining about the staff. It was the staff who wanted her to serve those drinks and the staff who uh, told her at one point that she was dressing too sexily and should dress in a less provocative way. She took great offense at that. Um, but anyway, there are two friends who come closest to corroborating the assault. One is an, a woman who prefers to remain anonymous 
And she knew Reed when they both worked on the Hill together way back in 1993. And last year, she corroborated Reed's claim that Biden had touched her neck and shoulders. Remember when Lucy Flores and a whole bunch of women came out and said, you know, we don't like that Biden smells our hair and touches our neck and shoulders and all like that. And Reed was one of those women. Reed was interviewed by her local paper um, at that time. And the friend corroborated in the, in the paper, the union uh, paper is called, corroborated Reed's claim that Biden had done this, had touched this, but said the friend, there was nothing sexual about it. And that is what Reed also said at the time. Then when Reed claimed assault this March, the friend corroborated that too and asked why, well, why did you keep, why did you uh, not say this? Why did you say all this, how it wasn't sexual last year? And she says, well, it just wasn't my place to come out with more than Reed had said. So in other words, this woman lied for her friend. I mean, to put it bluntly, that's what she did. So the, so the second corroborator is Linda LaCasse, and this was Reed's neighbor in the mid-90s. And she told Business Insider that Reed told her about the assault in 1995 or 96, but she admits she'd forgotten about it until Reed reminded her just a few months ago. Here's the interesting thing. She was interviewed by Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! And then she seemed to say she always remembered it. It wasn't like with Business Insider where she said, oh, I forgot, um, I'd forgotten about it. But then she said something really strange. Amy asked her about her own support for Biden. And she said this, it's a difficult thing. I've always supported him and I just have to keep supporting him now. And it's a little bit harder now after this allegation. Well, what does that mean after this allegation? She, always, she has said she always knew about this. So that sounds as if the allegation was new information to her and not something she always remembered um, or about which she just needed to have her memory jogged by Tara. Yeah, that was very striking to me about Biden. She said, quote, I've, to Amy Goodman, I've always supported him, but it's a little bit harder now after this allegation, which, as you say, makes it sound like she just found out when the, the rest of us did, even though she has said she heard about it 25 years ago. So she's always known about it. So this is an inconsistency. It is an inconsistency. So, um, you know, if you want to take those two women as corroboration, you have to overlook some things. But they are really the only evidence that this happened. Although Kate Mann, um, who you mentioned earlier, Kate Mann thinks that uh, making an allegation is a form of evidence. That seems uh, wrong to me. I mean, anyone can say anything about anyone. The evidence is what you bring to your claim. The evidence is not the claim. There is new information this past week. Big news from the PBS NewsHour. Tell us about that. They posted an article that was based on, on their website that's based on interviews with 74 Biden staffers. They all spoke highly of their boss and his respectful and enlightened behavior toward women. And he promoted a lot of women in the office. But more interesting that one staffer who had worked with Reed said her office problems had to do with her poor performance at the task they shared, which was answering constituent email, and how hard is that? And another one said this drinks request would never have happened 
because Biden, in a move for that seems quite unusual for that time, did not want women to do such menial tasks. And when he had um, events, men did those things. So interestingly, however, more than 50 people said as staffers they had never attended fundraisers, and some mentioned an office policy that barred most staffers from campaign work. So you kind of wonder, well, okay, what happens to one of her main complaints about the office was this thing that all these people say not only didn't happen, would have violated policies to have it happen. Another staffer said, who was there when uh, Reed was there, said it never would have happened. We all knew there was a very hard line there. And then there's the 74 Biden staffers, let's emphasize of whom 62 were women, were asked by the PBS NewsHour whether they had experienced sexual harassment, sexual assault, or sexual misconduct by Biden, or whether they'd ever heard any rumors or allegations about Biden engaging in sexual harassment, assault, or misconduct. Well, how did that turn out? They all said, no, nothing of the kind. You know, you, you sort of know who the bad guys are on the Hill, and he was a good guy. Uh, one of them said, you know, I traveled with him, and it, it, I always felt completely comfortable. So to me, this is the biggest one. 74 former Biden staffers, of whom 62 were women, all said they never experienced sexual harassment, assault, or misconduct by Biden, all said they never even heard any rumors or allegations of Biden engaging in sexual harassment, assault, or misconduct until Tara Reid. So you conclude. You know, I went from on the fence to don't believe, and I spent a lot of time reading everything I could and watching her on um, her various appearances on pro-Bernie shows like the Katie Helper show um, and Democracy Now!, where she was only asked the most softball of questions, I must say. And I just think that people ran with the story before it had enough support. Now, what do you say about the people who say feminists like you and, and me are being hypocritical when we say, believe the women, when there are people like Christine Blasey Ford accusing Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault, we believe them. We're not believing Tara Reid when she complains about Joe Biden. Are we being hypocritical right now? No, we are not being hypocritical because hashtag believe women, which I think was a mistake. I think it should have been hashtag listen to women or hashtag hear women out. It doesn't mean that every single woman, whatever she says, you have to believe it. That would be insane. Because rare as it is, there are women who do who do lie. I mean, the Scottsboro Boys, that was a famous case of that. Tawana Brawley is another one. That UVA, the woman who was at the center of that UVA frat rape story. Um, the Duke Lacrosse case. And the thing about these cases is that they linger in the popular imagination for years. Tawana Brawley was 33 years ago, and she's still in the popular imagination. So it's very important not to just say, oh, it's a woman. I believe her. You have to look at, you have to look at the evidence. You have to look at what's actually 
going on. And most of the time, I would say almost all the time, there will be important evidence that suggests she's telling the truth. Um, in this case, it just seems like everything that comes out, John, everything that comes out makes the story weaker, not stronger. Now about uh, Christine Blasey Ford, I think, you know, you can say that, yeah, sure, you might be, have been eager to believe Ford because she was it was against a Republican, I mean, a horrible, Brett Kavanaugh, and you might be reluctant to believe Reid because it's against a Democrat who, unlike, say, Ted Kennedy, doesn't have that kind of a reputation. But there's also the fact that Ford did not change her story. She testified under oath. She took a polygraph, and she had four sworn affidavits from people she told about the incident, plus her therapist's notes. And Reid doesn't have any of that. So the, the final question is, if she were telling the truth, should we vote for Biden anyway? Well, I think we have to, um, because this is uh, an election that is going to decide the fate of the United States for the foreseeable future, if not the whole world. And the election of Trump, the re-election of Trump, will be a just world-class disaster. And it'll be a disaster that will last more than four years because he's going to put He's going to completely reform the courts by then. I mean, they're putting in the most reactionary judges you can imagine. Um, probably even as even as we're speaking, they're they're confirming more of them. And what will that do for women? You know, the idea that you have to have some perfect guy to carry your banner. This is not how politics works at all. And people understand that. I mean, look at Governor Ralph Northam. Black Virginians stuck with him despite that blackface scandals. Are they hypocrites? No, you have to support the politician who is going to promote your interests, whatever his faults are. And that, you know, for better or worse, that's Joe Biden. Um, he is not going to step aside because of this. And, and I don't think he should. Your new column at The Nation makes the striking argument in this context that we should, quote, take a leaf from the evangelicals, close quote. Yeah, you know, everybody is down on them. Uh, well, every except themselves is down on them for being <laughs> enormous hypocrites because they vote for Donald Trump and say things like, well, he's God's instrument, imperfect man, just like King David, or he's a baby Christian. That was one of my favorites. But, you know, they don't care that 25 women have accused him of various kinds of misconduct or that he paid hush money to a porn star. And they don't care about his taxes um, or, you know, all the, all his bankruptcies and his dis various forms of dishonesty. They don't care about any of that. What they care about is what he will do for them. And that is install Supreme Court justices who will overturn Roe v. Wade. And that's just for starters. So what they're really saying when people say, you know, you shouldn't vote for Biden is let's have Donald Trump be president because Tara Reid has made an accusation, even though this accusation is extremely, I believe, unlikely to be true. Katha Pollitt, she wrote about Tara Reid for The Nation. You can read her piece right now at thenation.com. Katha, thanks for this one. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. Now it's time to talk about TV in the age of the virus, news you can use. From the Nation Magazine podcast, Start Making Sense. For today's top picks, we turn again to John Powers. 
He's critic at large for Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR. And he was a longtime film critic for Vogue and before that for the LA Weekly. John, welcome back. Glad to be here, John. Thanks to you, I've started watching something on HBO Go called The Sleepers. It's a Czech sort of spy thriller, my first Czech spy thriller. Uh, please explain what The Sleepers is about. Well, well, The Sleepers is a story that I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in, which is it's set basically in 1989 in Czechoslovakia, before the fall of communism, but when people kind of realize that communism is going to fall. The, the story involves two Czech dissidents who have fled, fle, who fled Czechoslovakia in 1977, a, a good year for flee, fleeing because of Charter 77. They moved to London and they have gone back to Czechoslovakia because more or less because they've been told it's safe. And so they go back and then something bad happens, the two get separated, and suddenly they're plunged into the reality of Czechoslovakia in 1989, where there are lots of different people. Most of them have their own agendas, and those agendas are often not pleasant. Nicely put. Had you ever heard of any of the people who, who made the sleepers or, or any of the stars? No, no, I'd never heard of, I'd never heard of any of them. It's all new. And I was impressed by how well made it is um, it is that you know somehow i probably have my old sense of the kind of comical footage you would see from albanian tv series <laughs> that something out, out of out of the czech republic wouldn't be so good so good but this i mean this the guy who made it started off in commercials so it has a it, the show has a very slick look but what's interesting is he manages to tell the story in a way that doesn't make it seem like a commercial. It's, you know, it's quite well acted. Almost everybody is in one way or another ambiguous. Probably the least ambiguous person is the heroine, a, the violinist whose husband was the, was the bigger dissident of the two. She is the daughter of a famous dissident in Czechoslovakia who then fell in love with the dissident. But in fact, she doesn't seem particularly dissident. She seems to be the person who is maybe the version of us. All she wants to do is like be in Czechoslovakia, play violin, be with her husband and have a nice life. Whereas everybody else has something else going on. Even her husband has some sort of thing that may be romantic that she doesn't know about. It's a very uh, grim story, a very bleak story uh, that makes this, a, in some ways, a familiar kind of spy thriller about Eastern Europe in the 70s or 80s. It is, but I, th I think what's interesting about it is that in some ways it, it, you know, it links up to things like the Le Carre stuff in the sense that it's about the way the bureaucracy works. You know, and, I mean, some of my favorite things in the series are the ways that you have these people who work as secret policemen in, in, in Czechoslovakia. And you know, they have spent years hounding dissidents and suddenly they're at the point where they're looking around the world. They've just seen Poland go and they realize within a few months, those people may be in power. What do we do? And at the same time, our bosses and the Soviets are still telling us to crush these dissidents. So how do you, how do you play all of this? So you have people at different levels of schemingness, different levels of honor. And then what makes it especially interesting to me is that you have two British secret agents who are also at work and 
as in a good Lacare thing, they don't like each other and they may have different agendas and each thinks the other one is corrupt. And they have their own plans about how they, what they want to be happening in Czechoslovakia, which are not the same as the Soviet plans. And of course, there's a Soviet spy guy who has his own plans about what to do. The end of the first episode, one of these Czech secret policemen talking to another, recounting a visit they've made to a dissident uh, hangout, says, they're still afraid of us, but now we're getting to be afraid of them. Exactly. Plus, you know, you get, you know, you get the nice fun stuff to look at. You know, Prague is not a bad looking city at all. Even in the bleakness, make it look, look good. But also the secret police were exceedingly brutal in these Eastern European countries. And so you get some of that as well. And it's filled with twists all the way through the, the final, through the finale and ends on a note that I think that Le Carre would like. So we haven't heard of the people who made this program, but of course there are some famous Czech films and filmmakers. Back in the 60s, two Czech films won Oscars for Best Foreign Film. The Shop on Main Street in 1965, I looked this up, and Closely Watched Trains in 1966. But of course, that was a long time ago, actually more than 50 years ago. I have not kept up with Czech cinema, much less TV, since then. Have you? No, not so much. I mean, I think when, when communism fell, my, my friend Jim Hoberman saying that the last socialized movie system in the world was Canada's. I was in the Soviet Union in 89 when things were going, going bad. And suddenly the studios, which used to have huge amounts of money with no responsibility for showing that people went to the movies, suddenly started turning capitalist. And I think that happened all through Eastern Europe. You know, there used to be money for film because film was thought to be a propaganda medium that was, that was very good. And at the same time, they also wanted to create art that would compete with the West. And so that's how you would get, you know, someone like Ivan Passer, who's the, I think probably my favorite one, he made a little thing called Intimate Lighting in the 60s, which, which is really wonderful. But Milos Forman, who would come to Hollywood and be big. It took them a long time and they still haven't really recovered, you know, because part of the marvel of the communist system was it believed in art and not just commerce. And so you had all these filmmakers making really interesting things and you know, many of them left, but basically Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union had a long tradition of great filmmaking. Once they had to go to commercial, they were competing with the West. They had a hard time. Something like this is actually, I think, a real step forward in a way, because you can imagine them having a successful, a successful television series in the West, which is something I, I really haven't seen before. You also recommend novels for us on this show. This week you got me reading an old one by a writer I'd never heard of. Alfred Hayes, one I'm reading is a book published in 1958 called My Face for the World to See, it republished recently by New York Review Classics. Who was Alfred Hayes? Alfred Hayes was this, this interesting figure who kind of hovers in the back of people's consciousness if they're film people. And I hadn't heard of him for a long time either. It was a, a French film guru guy who told me, John Powell, have you ever heard of Alfred Hayes? And mm -hmm. I hadn't. Alfred Hayes was a Jewish guy born in London whose family moved to New York when he was three. He went to university in New York, went off to fight in World War II in Italy. But before he did that, he had a little career as a journalist and a poet and wrote Joe Hill. You know, you know the thing that was recorded, he didn't do the music, 
but the actually I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night was Alfred Hayes. Amazing. Amazing. He went off, went to Italy, learned Italian, wrote a couple novels set in basically Italy in, after the war. And one of them got him connected to Roberto Rossellini. And one of the, epi one of the episodes of Paisan is actually based on an Alfred Hayes thing and Hayes wrote it. Because he then knew the neorealist, he helped Vittorio De Sica write Bicycle Thieves. Mm. And he basically got a couple Oscar nominations for his, his work there, then came back to Hollywood where he worked with Nicholas Ray, Fritz Lang, and, and other people before, as happened with a lot of these talented people, having their careers shift over to writing serial television. So he ended up his career writing Mannix. He'd gone from Rossellini to Mannix, which I think may be some sort of story of, of the entire century. In the process, he wrote a series of novels. He wrote three of them about Hollywood's, about screenwriters. The first one's called In Love, which is a hyper-passionate, yet Proustian, yet cruel, short little novel about desire. He wrote the one you're reading called My, My Face for the World to See, which I think is a really good novel. Are, are you enjoying it, by the way? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's a Hollywood noir of the 50s. It's a Hollywood noir of the, of the 50s, and it's smart in lots of other ways. He's got a new one, and the reason why we're talking about him is one called The End of Me, which is about a screenwriter who goes back to New York to recapture his past and gets involved with some young people. Because there's always in his stories an older screenwriter falling in love with a, a beautiful young woman. That happens again in the new one as well. He goes back to New York, gets involved with these young people, including a beautiful young woman, and then discovers maybe that the world has passed him by, which is something I think that probably many people feel. You know, I can imagine if you've worked with Rossellini and, and been in big time Hollywood to suddenly be doing serial TV or not getting work, you can really feel the world has passed you by. He's a really good writer. Probably all three of the novels that I'm mentioning from the New York Review of Press come to maybe 400 pages. Another French friend of mine, I think accurately said, you know, th th there's a certain reminiscence of Fitzgerald to them because they're, are, they're about dark, about these dark romantic relationships. They're quite brief. You can't quite believe they work, but they, they do work. In addition to all of that, he's tremendously good on the relationship between men and women. His female characters are always good characters. He is himself a misogynist, but he's a misogynist of, of the good kind, which is a, speaking literarily, not personally. What you want in your misogynist is that not only does he create memorable female characters, but you can feel the misogyny of the characters being shown. So it's not as though it's something where all the women are awful and the guys are heroic. When you're reading the novels, you, th you think, oh, yes, this guy is a misogynist. So we're seeing things through his eyes, but we can see that those eyes aren't seeing things properly. So in terms of sexual politics, he's a really interesting writer. So we've been talking about The Sleepers on HBO Go and about the Hollywood noir novelist, Alfred Hayes, out now from New York Review Classics. This has been News You Can Use, a special feature of Start Making Sense. John Powers, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you, John. Start 
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.